Thanks very much indeed, um, Nicholas, and a huge thank you to Capital Link as well for, for putting on, on this afternoon. Um, look, I think it's fair to say we've had a fantastic day. Um, last panel of the day, and certainly by no means uh, a weak panel at all. It's like a very a, a sort of a, a who's who of shipping uh, that we have with us this afternoon. So first things first, my name's Andy McKerran. I'm the Chief Commercial Officer at Lloyd's Register, and I'm de delighted today to be joined by Svinan Stoller, who's the Deputy CEO of Angela Kousis Group, George Economou, who's the founder of TMS Group, Gary Vogel, who's the CEO of uh, Eagle Bulk Shipping. Uh, we've then got uh, Carl-Johan Hagman, who's the president and CEO of NYK Group Europe. Uh, and we've also got Lars Barstead, who's the CEO of Frontline. So chaps, as we kick off, it's a question for everybody. Uh, you know, we've heard all day around decarbonization uh, being one of the biggest challenges that we clearly have facing us in the maritime industry today. And certainly with IMO now being expected to make revisions to um, its greenhouse gas ambitions next month in the MEPC 80, what are the barriers that are stopping you from ordering uh, zero carbon ships today? Svining, let's start with you. <clears throat> Thank you, and um, thanks for the invitation to be here. Um, well, first of all, uh, from our side, Anglicus's group, we do spend a lot of time, money, and resources to look at the alternative fuels for the maritime industry. Our conclusion, which we have shown by ordering dual fuel LNG, VLCCs, and SUS Maxis is that LNG is the best solution there today. It's safe, it works, it's available, and actually prices are now lower than VLSFO. So what more can you ask for? Emissions, if you compare um, our new uh, dual fuel VLCCs, their energy consumption and CO2 emissions with a 10-year-old conventionally fueled VLCC, our emissions are 40% less, for zero. If that's not an improvement, I don't know what is, and it's there today. So when it comes to alternative fuels, Yes, we do believe that there are alternative fuels and maybe for the time being, ammonia looks to be a good solution. Um, but it needs to be green ammonia. And there's a lot of projects and we are very positive that they will come, but they're not available today. So we see quite a few people ordering what's defined or called ammonia-ready vessels. But what are they going to burn? They're going to burn oil. Is that a good solution? No, we don't think so. We believe LNG is a much better solution. So we will order vessels that can burn alternative fuels when the fuels show us that in the close horizon, they will be available where we need them. Our fleet is a tramping fleet. We don't go from A to B. We need to know that when we need bunkers, we can get them in a safe, efficient, and cost-efficient manner. So the first step to that, of course, is to make sure that 
ammonia, for example, is safe. We don't know that today. We have never used ammonia in an engine room as of yet. Can that be done? Yes, I believe it can be done. But we need to do the work and we need to build the systems and we need to do all the tests to make sure that it works. So, long-winded answer. For us, LNG is the best solution. Uh, and we will continue to order LNG fuel vessels uh, also into the future. Thank you. Thanks, Fine, and I think that's a great start because it is really a case of you've already started making commitments on this transition and this journey, and then it's a, a people process technology type of um, uh, sort of wait and see. I did have somebody say to me the other day that their, their driveway was Ferrari ready, like some ships are ammonia ready. It will never see a Ferrari. But um, George, over to you as far as the TMS group is concerned and some of those barriers that you're seeing really for, for you to be able to you know, really embark on this, this transition. Well, I, I agree with all the comments made uh, previously about LNG being the obvious and the only for the time being uh, solution until the others settle and, you know, we have visibility as to availability and so on and so forth. We have chosen a very different path as, uh, as, as people know, I mean, we, we are in the dry bulk business and the tanker and the LNG. The LNG is, the, they, they, they do burn LNG anyway. Uh, the others, we are in the spot market, and most of our ships on the tankers is mostly smaller ships. We only have 55 uh, VLs out of, uh, uh, five VLs, sorry, out of 52 vessels we have in the water, and we've ordered some uh, nine uh, tankers, which is LR2s and Swiss Maxes. On the dry bulk, and I'll revert back on the fuels. On the dry bulk, again, you know, predominantly we have Cape Size and Newcastle Maxes, out of the 70 ships, half of them are that, and the rest are Gamster Maxes and uh, Panamaxes. We've opted to go with conventional uh, fuels and uh, uh, with scrubbers and all the bells and whistles with the uh, shaft generators and so on and so forth. But we didn't uh, take the decision to do uh, LNG because for two reasons. One is that uh, there are smaller ships on the tanker side. We don't have any new building VLTCs, uh, uh, which would make more sense in, in that the uh, cost is about, call it 15, 16 million dollars more. So it's a bit smaller percentage of the purchase price versus an Aframax. Uh, and we didn't do so on the dry cargo vessels we have ordered, which are mostly smaller ships with uh, four or eight uh, gape size vessels. And I, I think, you know, we're doing still the traditional thing, we're putting scrubbers, heavy fuel oil. Our horizon has always been five to seven years. So we have time to reverse our decision if we think there's uh, a purpose to go to different uh, vessels. But for now, we're happy with the decision we've taken. Thanks so much, George. No, really great perspective. Gary, over to you from Eagle Bulk perspective. Yeah, thanks, Andy, and I appreciate the opportunity to be here. So um, we're a little different in that we're exclusively in the mid-sized dry bulk set segment, and we're tramp, uh, tramp shippers, so that we don't know where our ships are going. Last year, we called on almost 400 different ports. And so when you combine the, the size of the vessel with an uncertainty, LNG is not even an option. So our approach at the moment is to focus on on ships that um, are modern, but have 
but won't have what we call, a, what we think is a significant tail risk of ordering a conventional powered ship that'll deliver, say, three years from now and then, and then only be 40% through its economic life in 2035 with a lot of uncertainty. So we focused on, we bought 33 vessels, mostly averaging around 20, 2015 built, with the idea that they'll be 80% through 2035. And, and then the second part of that approach is, is to be a good steward of capital, right? To be in a position, we can't be first movers. I like to say we're gonna be fast followers. And when the opportunity comes, when there's a solution that, again, fuel, fuel supply chain, being able to, uh, to uh, and be sure that we're gonna be able to get fuel on our vessels, that zero emission fuel in the future, when we're able to do that, we're, we're gonna be able to raise the capital to go ahead and commit to that new building. So I think that's an important aspect to it as well. And, and that is to you know, say, you know, be clear about what our strategy is, execute on it, and then when we have another strategy. And I'll just say, you know, I think we were clear on that when we made a very contrarian bet to put scrubbers, or I, I use the term bet, I, I try not to, but when we made a decision to put scrubbers on our vessels on the mid-sized fleet, right, and we were clear about it, we carried through on it. So I think, you know, do, doing that type of thing is really important because at some point, you know, the, the investment required for this will be quite significant and, and being able to attract that capital is going to be, you know, critical to the success. Fabulous. Thanks, Gary. Uh, Carl Johan, how about yourself? I know it's a bit unfair because it's two months in now, but um, how, how are you seeing it from the NYK perspective? Well, thank you, Andy. If your question was, what's the barrier for us to, to order zero emission ships, uh, sort of just reflecting on that, I think there are a couple. So, First of all, at the beginning of this seminar this morning, I would have probably said technology, but everybody in the morning said that that's not the case. And if I can have my own stories, so I, previous to this job, I was with, with the, the Swedish company Stena. Um, we converted the first vessel to be run on methanol nine years ago. So it's not as though technology is not there. Why didn't it work, whether it's gray or blue or green? Well, it was three to four times more expensive than, than MGO. I mean, it's not more complicated than so. So I would argue that, no, this is not a hard-to-abate industry. It's, it's getting somebody to pay for it. And, and uh, so I think, really, the second hurdle is the customer base, uh, the cargo owners, haven't been ready to pay for this because we operate in a almost perfectly working uh, global market. Um, and then up until today, I think something that we really haven't discussed is that at least those of us who are exposed to the liner business, I mean, we've made a copious amount of money uh, the last 24 months. However, before then, many of us have not made money for a very, very long time. And, and I think that has to be weighed in there again, that, that when you're in a management meeting or a boardroom and you're really struggling to survive, uh, the conversation is sort of is framed in, in a slightly different way. Now there is money in the system. And uh, to answer your question, so I'm very proud now to work for NYK since two months back. So we have just ordered uh, the first tugboat uh, that will be delivered with a four-stroke engine in 2024 that will be run 100% on ammonia. And if that wasn't enough, the first tanker will be delivered year 2026, 100% run on ammonia. So it can be debated if that can be done or not, but I must say that, that um, representing a non-European company and seeing the research capabilities that are out in Asia and when, when our Asian friends sort of set their mind to it, I'm actually quite optimistic. And so to answer your question, yes, they already have been ordered. Fabulous, what a great response. Lars, no pressure. Uh, what are the barriers that you're seeing to zero emission vessels? Well, 
I already regret uh, sitting at the end of the panel uh, because there's been so many good points made already. But uh, speaking on behalf of Frontline, um, you know, yes, we have a responsibility towards the environment, but we also have a responsibility towards uh, our investors. And I think kind of the last point that was made is a big point. You know, it has to be economically, uh, economically feasible. And uh, I think uh, kind of the last year's volatility we've seen, in particular on LNG, has kind of made that calculation a, a bit more difficult uh, to, to, to make uh, kind of uh, uh, forward. Uh, I also would like to say that uh, as an industry as an whole, shipping has actually done quite a lot the last 10-15 uh, years. Uh, for Frontline, we, we have one of the most uh, modern fleets running in the market, so we have actually done our fair, shares, uh, fair share as well. And we are obviously exploring all the opportunities that are out there, but, uh, but uh, you know, we run deep ocean-going vessels. Um, uh, you know, there's both a logistical element to it, it's an efficiency element to it, and it's a price risk element to it. So, so um, you know, zero emission, I think, is a bit uh, out there for us, at least. We like to call ourselves late adapters, um, but, we, you know, we support the technology race. Thanks very much indeed. So we've got late adopters. What was it? Fast followers, Gary, I think, wasn't it? No, fantastic. Um, right, so moving on, I think, um, cl clearly uh, we, we can look at people, process, and technology, but as well as the IMO in terms of some of the uh, regulation that they're introducing, we're also seeing other instruments that are now coming into the industry, especially around, you know, EU, for example, and, and the emissions trading scheme, um, Fit for 55, etc. Um, how do you think that that is now going to impact your companies? Um, also the industry, your clients, and do you think it's going to be the IMO or do you think it's going to be some of these other more regional initiatives that will actually be the, the leader of change? So Lars, let's start with you this time. Again, yeah. I, I, um, uh, kind of the most uh, kind of present um, challenge that we face is obviously the EU ETS. Uh, but, uh, you know, the tanker fleet, at least, or, or the shipping in general, has been extremely adaptable uh, with regards to eco zones, uh, you know, with, with other kind of ballast water treatment, all, all kind of uh, challenges or, or, or improvements that the regulators have thrown at us, uh, we've been extremely adaptable. And I think kind of the EU test will be solved as well. I think it's somewhat frustrating for owners, of course, because we're not really in the room when the regulatory, you know, the regulatory framework is being made up. Um, it's, uh, you know, in some instances you are, others you're not. So, so you, you could say that it's, it's kind of weird that we're sitting here in 2023 and we don't really have the full picture on how uh, EU ETS, which is going to start next year, is going to be executed. Um, so, so uh, but we'll adapt. Uh, but I think kind of that would be my answer. You know, that's the, that's the, the first one where we're facing at least. Yeah, and we will have to adapt. George, what, what about your view on this one as far as the, I'm going to say, the emissions trading schemes and those sort of changes between you and your clients' relationships? Well, I, I think one thing that the ship owners as uh, different bodies have not really had their say was in when the regulations are being made. And I'll take another example, which probably you're not going to address, which is the CII. That should have never happened. Now we're talking about abandoning it, revising it. Well, how about scrapping it? I mean, that, that should be the way to do it. Now, whether the people that have spent all this time would be willing to say, yes, okay, we're going to scrap it. Uh, I doubt it. But I think one of the things that we need to be involved in, it's not easy as bodies, whether it's the UGS or the respective uh, bodies of other uh, 
organizations is to be proactive, which we haven't been. Uh, now, with regard to it, yes, obviously we'll adapt. Uh, and, you know, we, we try to make our vessels, all the ones we're ordering now, to be as efficient as, uh, as possible. Fantastic. Thanks, Joel. So it's the efficiency drive again in terms of a new construction and, and your existing fleets. Gary, how about, how about your view? Yeah, so as a tramp operator, you know, we, we solve for TCE. And, and so trading to the EU under ETS, um, we'll do that. And I think it'll be an efficient market. It'll adjust just like it did for something like IMO 2020. Um, you know, we've done some biofuel trials, which are going to come in, you know, well for us because most, most of our peers in the midsize haven't. And, and biofuels, I think, will play a, an important part, you know, when trading in the EU, um, alongside with obviously, of course, having efficient ships and doing things that, that you know, make it less onerous. So it, it clearly, I think everyone would prefer a global, um, you know, uh, market-based measure, but, but, you know, we're not there. So it's gonna start with, with the EU. And, and uh, as Lars said, I think, you know, the industry has a good track record of being adaptable, or you mentioned ECAs, and I remember people saying, we're gonna have hundreds of ships lining up waiting for fuel, and it didn't happen, right? And the same with availability of the OSFO. It doesn't mean there aren't speed bumps and things like that, but I, I think the industry is quite adaptable, and um, you know, we'll take this one as well. Very good, thanks, Gary. Carl Johan, from your perspective, I think in terms of the reporting side of things as well, and maybe some of the difficulties around that. Okay, so, um, well, I'm from the land of Greta Thunberg, uh, and, and of course, I think our, our largest challenge is that as an industry, we emit a billion tons of CO2, and when we see statistics for 2022, that's probably a number that's increasing. So I actually see EU ETS as something very positive. We would have loved that this would have been an IMO measure. Just reflect on, we just spoke about, about taking out sulfur. We've taken out, what is it, 75% of sulfur seven years ago, and we didn't even notice it. I mean, it's a, it's a huge win when our industry can act, can act as, as one. Um, however, all the good things we've spoken about the whole morning, I mean, we are proof of the fact that without legislation, this is not moving. Uh, and therefore, I think, in lieu of, of IMO, I mean, this is the, 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 the second best part. So that's me as a Swede. I represent NYK, and of course, from a Japanese point of view, I think we're less than thrilled that one portion of the world, relatively arbitrary, uh, sets a levy and then takes out 50% of that for the roots. And, and I think that goes with the fact that, that uh, sort of we need to get the IMO working because otherwise I, I think the other parts of the world are actually going to find this quite frustrating. But I think it's, so gonna, I think it's going to have real impact for, for the first time. Um, I think we're having some very good conversations with our customers in the sense that ultimately the cargo owner has to pay at least a, a portion or hopefully a majority of this and therefore having this significant public debate before it's enacted. It worked very well when we introduced the SECAS and, and, and the low sulfur fuel uh, and therefore this preparatory period is, is very good for us. Um, we are relatively slow to adapt, and I think particularly when we come to liner systems, you will actually see uh, shifts in cargo uh, and, and how that is operated, simply because we react very strongly to, to economic stimuli. Thanks very much indeed, Carl. Yeah, hands finally. <clears throat> yes, thank you. Um, I think that um, when it comes to these regulations, uh, my answer is 
just get on with it because it's not going to change. It's there and we have to deal with it. Uh, we might or might not agree with uh, how things have been put in place, but I think that's a responsibility the industry needs to put on its own shoulders. So when it comes to the CII regulation, that uh, obviously has only one objective, and that is to take the least efficient vessels out of the fleet. Um, this, of course, uh, this legislation is quite complicated. It requires companies to do a lot of work and follow the vessels extremely closely. We do that. Uh, we have all the systems in place. Uh, we have 142 ships on the vessel, the vessels on the, on the water, and um, we know exactly at each given day what the CIA rating is for each ship. A lot of people don't do that. They will be surprised because the market, in my view, has already, in certain segments, have uh, split into different levels, commercially speaking. <coughs> And charterers today have to know exactly what the rating of each vessel is before they will charter it. So this is, this is happening. And when it comes to the EU ETS, once again, I just want to correct, I think Carl Johan said, uh, hope the charterers will pay. The charter are going to pay for this. We are not going to pay for this. We don't own the cargo. So let, let's just be clear on that. Um, the, the other thing, of course, is that legislation will, once again, make the difference between the most efficient and the least efficient ships. So, you, if you take the number I mentioned earlier, a Suez Max which emits 40% less CO2 than the competitor, well, obviously, the charterer will choose my ship because it's going to pay 40% less tax. So that's the whole purpose of this legislation, is to make vessels more efficient and less polluting. Thank you. Thanks, Finan. So your, your mentality is just get in front of it and actually sort of run with the, with the process as quick as you possibly can. No. Absolutely. Andy, can I? Can Please I do, Gary. Yeah. So in general, I, I, I agree. I like your approach. You know, you've got to put the ball in play, right? There's no, I don't think there's ever been a regulation where like, this is perfect, let's go, right? It doesn't happen. But CII has has certain real challenges that are that are, you know, specific. As a, as an example, you know, we carry a lot of cargo to and from developing nations. You get penalized for time in port. So if I want to improve my ship's rating, I can just trade between U.S. and EU. And now that critical cargo, you know, whether whether it's grain or what have you, or or exports from in West Africa won't be carried, or or the cost is go, is going to go up. Um, and and in addition. You know, you get credit for using uh, pumps to discharge cargo on a tanker under CII. The, sm the smaller bulk carriers, which I just mentioned, are penalized, don't get that credit, which doesn't, in my mind, doesn't seem to make sense. Uh, you know, and so there are, there are things, and then if you go, if you carry, if you went empty back from Asia to the Gulf, you'd have a better rating than carrying cargo in both directions because typically it takes a long time to load. So I just think in, in general, I agree with you, but there are certain, CII is, is unique. And, and I think it's important that we make some, there are things and, and a lot's underfoot to improve it so that it's equitable across the landscape. 
and brings in that pragmatism around trading yeah. as opposed to just a reporting mechanism. So absolutely. So Gary, staying with you, um, I think you know a couple of weeks back we saw um, you know major news around Eagle Bulk in terms of uh, your refinancing, um, which you said at the moment you know at the time gave you a massive amount of sort of liquidity. Um, I mean, would you consider it now the right time for ship owners to look at refinancing, or was it just a case of that it was the, the right place at the right time? Well, it was, it was the right time for us. Um, you know, it, 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 the catalyst was, um, you know, someone mentioned earlier, right, that, you know, balance sheets are strong. We bought four Ultramaxes in the latter part of last year and early this year, a little over $100 million, and we, we paid cash for them. And, and we don't typically, you know, use cash 100%. And so... When we looked at it, we had an accordion feature under our financing, but you know, you know, when you do financing, it's like, oh, five years, that's forever, and all of a sudden you realize, well, three years to go and one year, you gotta do it a year before, so we just took the opportunity to extend as, as well as upsize, and it was the right thing. We've, we're very fortunate, we, we get really good support from our, from our banks, we traditional lending and, and slightly improved margin, and you know, I think that's on the back of, there, there's a real, you know, um, I think a good delineation now between, you know, corporates, if you will, you know, and, and recourse and, and transparency and things like that. So it was, I'm, I'm not going to say it's the right time for everyone. It was the right thing at the right time for, for ourselves. Super. Thanks, Gary. So Carl Johannes, we were saying earlier, I think, you know, you've been now with MYK for, for a couple of months, um, you know, new perspectives, uh, as you said, different nuances, I think, because of the, the ownership, et cetera, and, and the geography. So what challenges and opportunities do you see from an MYK perspective over the next year? So thanks. Can I just, before I answer that, just I need to help Svedung out here on his LNG stuff. Um, so LNG is difficult. Um, so NYK also does LNG in, in many different forms. Um, Five years ago, it was sustainable from an EU taxonomy point of view. Three and a half years, it was not sustainable, and now it's sustainable again. So trying to, to explain to my superiors what is EU policy is, is, is not that simple. But um, what we can do today, so we are now loading car carriers based on LNG fully, LNG-fueled, that, by the way, cargo owners are paying for. Um, and it's just interesting. Just today, we can now verify that we're loading at a 40% uh, reduction in CO2 emissions compared to conventional fuels. So if we're worried about here and now today, I, I, I was sort of, we're, we're there. <laughs> uh, because it's really about what we do, sort of the good of today cannot be the enemy of, of, of the ultimate good. Well, um, just then getting back to your question on NYK, I've only been there two months. Um, so let's just try this one out. I've lived in Japan and Korea for 25 years, and you are just totally struck by how different culturally we are across the world. We try to explain to each other that we're all the same, but it's really interesting that we structurally organize ourselves so differently, and evidently there are many roads to success and many different roads sort of uh, lead, lead to Rome, if I, if sort of, uh, which I find intellectually super interesting, and being in Norway like this, I think an element of humbleness to study actually what successful companies outside Europe are doing uh, would do Europe and Scandinavia a lot of good. Um, uh, what's striking is the enormous capability. So NYK, I would argue, is not only a shipping company, it's really a, it's a proponent for the Japanese maritime cluster. Uh, so the, the, the breadth and depth of capabilities um, is, is in quite incredible. Uh, not the quickest people uh, to move 
on the other hand, we are very fond of, of having five-year plans, and other Asian countries are as well. So the latest NYK five-year plan is labeled, I just have to read it, a passion for societal well-being. Now, that gives me a lot of hope, because if anybody had said that two or three years ago, uh, you, would, you would have been at a different conference. Um, and, and, uh, but the fact that, that um, a very broad technical base uh, is shifting to, towards societal well-being, truly understanding the, the uh, uh, in, in my view, its role in society. And you can do that if you're a company from 1860-something. Um, and, and therefore, I think it is quite phenomenal that, that, that sort of we are a global industry, but we actually need to learn from each other. And we've been talking about relationships and networks the whole day. And, and uh, that's why I think many of us are, are here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sorry, I'm still tickled by that, so, but I've just got to compose myself. Um, right, it's fine. Um, so you, you, you made an announcement um, that you were looking at a partnership with um, Chevron around ammonia. Can you share with us a little bit more about what you're hoping to get out of that? And is it on the fuel side? Is it on the trade side, etc.? And, and what's the direction of travel for that, that investigation? Yes. Um, but first of all, uh, Chevron uh, is one of the most important customers of uh, Anglicus's group. We do a lot of business, especially on tankers and, uh, and LNGs. Um, so Chevron uh, is looking at major projects uh, around the world to produce and export uh, ammonia. And um, as a ship owner, uh, what we do, we design, we supervise and we build and operate ships. So we are looking at this together with Chevron to come up with um, a new design for larger size, large size ammonia carriers. Um, so our role is purely on the, on the ship owning side. Um, and hopefully we uh, will also come to the conclusions that we can use ammonia as the fuel for the vessels. That is also part of the scope. Um, and then, um, then we'll see where we take it from there. So it's very exciting. Uh, we are very pleased with the cooperation we have with Chevron and uh, this is part of the overall cooperation that we have with them as a group. Super, thank you thank for sharing you. that. No, thank you very much indeed. George, um, I think it was back in January I saw that you had 25 ships on order or something impressive anyway, I mean massively impressive. Um, majority in China of your bulkers and tankers, etc. And then I think from, from your perspective, I mean, is, is China becoming now the go-to as far as, you know, ship owners are concerned? And what are some of the advantages, disadvantages that you see within the current order book? Well, first of all, we have 20 bulk carriers and nine tankers all uh, to be constructed in uh, China. Many reasons. Japanese yards are very expensive. Koreans don't construct bulk carriers, they construct tankers, they're much more expensive. We have a long experience having contracted first ships in China in 2003. And provided you have a good supervision team and you order with uh, uh, top-notch uh, yards, uh, you, you will not have an inferior vessel uh, to, as compared to the Korean or Japanese. Uh, I, I think on the conventional ships it's, it's fine provided your supervision teams are uh, good and we, we have the experience so we don't feel that we're penalized. It's a perception issue 
but I think more and more people come to realize that Chinese provided you constructed the right yard with the right supervision are not bad. Fabulous, thank you, George. So I think um, just moving on a little bit, I think to, to green corridors, you know, um, and basically, do you see them? And I think it's a question for everybody. We'll go down the panel as, as a you know a way to kickstart green investment. And, you know, for specific types of ships and specific types of trades, are you involved in any, or what would it take to become involved in them? Lars, let's, let's kick off with yourself. Well, I, I, I think I'm the wrong person to start on the Green Corridor, so thank you very much for that uh, pass. <laughs> Carl Johan. From an AYK point of view, we are... We are looking at them both into Europe and car carriers, and we're looking on the bulk side from South America uh, back, back to Asia. Um, I think in the previous panel it was discussed, uh, I think it's very important that the rich part of the world pays. Um, so electrical ferries in Norway I think is great. Norway I think is $82,000 in GDP per capita. And again from COP26, if rich people don't pay, nothing will happen, and, and therefore Finding corridors, I think, in Europe, uh, domestically in Norway, uh, coming from Stena, ferries uh, within the Irish Sea or, or in the North Sea, I think would be very natural uh, next steps because this, this pie is too big to take in one, in one bite. Uh, and, and therefore, I, I think this notion is, is a phenomenal way to build some enthusiasm and to see that it actually works. On the other hand, with it needs to come government support. And, and if you think it's difficult to do this in the IMO with, what did we say, 176 members, well, domestically UK or domestically Norway or inter whatever, Scandinavia, you think should have been done yesterday. And, and, and with sufficient support, as we've been talking about the IRA and other things in the US, of course it can be done. And, and I think it's a phenomenal thing. But don't, as a legislator, don't sit back and wait for the market to fix this. I mean, we need to jumpstart it, and therefore we need to see political leadership, especially in Europe. Thanks, Carl Johan. Gary, where's your appetite on this one? Yeah, I, I mean, I think these are great initiatives, but again, they lend themselves to vessels that are, that are repeating their trades. I mean, whether, whether it's a liner or, or, you know, a cape, which is constantly going to the same ports, I already mentioned, you know, we're calling hundreds of ports. We may, one of our vessels may, may call somewhere and not go back for five years. So it just doesn't lend itself. But, but absolutely, you know, anything that will um, spur investment and give people the confidence to go ahead and be able to order ships because they're going to be able to fuel their ships are things that we need to move this forward. It's all about speed, right? Ultimately, we get there, but it's about speed. And the same reason we need a market-based measure, right, to, so that people can can understand that how they're going to be repaid for that investment or have the potential to be repaid for it. Thanks, Gary. George? I think we're not ready to get married now. Uh, and because the, the business model that we have does not cater to green corridors. I mean, we're Trump operators. Uh, we're not willing to enter into long-term business that by definition doesn't give you a high return. If you were to do that, you would need a very long charter so that you know where your residual is at the end of the, of the uh, venture. So I said, we, we're not ready for that marriage. So sit and watch, see the technology that comes out of it, and maybe look at adoption for other, other parts of the shipping industry. Yeah, absolutely, but not in, in what we do right now, yes. Thanks, George. It's fine. Yeah, I, again, same as George just said, I mean, our business, we're in tankers, dry bulk, and LNG. We're in the tramping business. 
corridors um, uh, doesn't work that much for us. But again, uh, as it's already been said, it's a great initiative, and I think a lot of positive development should come out of it. Um, in particular, when it comes to development of infrastructure, um, the uh, low carbon fuels we need. Uh, you know, as, as a company, we are completely fuel agnostic. Uh, if the fuel works, if it's available, if it's pricely, priced uh, correctly, we, we will use it. So I think all of these initiatives are good. Um, I, I guess uh, for the green corridors, um, at the moment, they are, you know, very regionally based, um, and it doesn't really fit to our business model, but hopefully they, they will lead to something positive over time. So it's fine, just coming back to the first point I think you made around digitalization and I'm going to say transparency, and really around, I'm going to say, energy optimization. What sort of things are you looking at as a company there in terms of you know, a fleet installation of energy saving devices, technologies, etc.? Well, for energy saving devices, um, I think the first thing I have to mention is that we should not forget the existing fleet. The existing fleet transports 85% of world goods today, and it needs to be there. Uh, people need to understand that the energy transition is a transition. It's not a switch. It's not going to be green tomorrow. It's going to be green at some point in time in the future. So we spend a lot of time. We have a, an energy efficiency department that tracks all our vessels. And you'd be surprised that if you make sure that the hulls of our tankers or our bulkers are never fouled, you will reduce your energy consumption with 10 to 15%. And the same for the propeller, 5%. So you need to track this. So we do this with um, digitalization and make sure that all the vessels at any given point in time, we know exactly how they perform because that will tell you if performance is deteriorating. So that's for the existing fleet. For new builds, we always put on the most efficient, latest technological solutions, such as uh, shaft generators, such as ALS on the LNG carriers. And uh, going forward, we are also looking at potentially carbon capture on board for LNG carriers. That could be of interest because you have access to cryogenic uh, systems on board. So anyway, we always try to uh, improve the existing fleet. We always try to improve when we build new to make the vessel the most efficient vessel that is available in the market. Thank you. Fantastic, fine, and, and we're, we're out of time, but I mean, that, that's a nice one to finish on, that certainly we can't build, you know, today's ships with tomorrow's fuels because of the power density issues that we're going to face with future fuels. So whatever we can do, and I know every one of you is, is looking at the energy-saving devices, energy efficiencies of, of existing fleets. But with that, um, I would like you to join me by saying a huge thank you um, to our panelists for a wonderful session.